Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. So, Ken, we were expecting an indictment this week. There was someone we really thought was likely to be indicted this week, and as of Thursday afternoon, this person has not been indicted. And I'm willing to bet quite a lot of money that he will also not be indicted before the end of Friday. I'm feeling good about putting this episode in the can. Are you feeling good about that? Josh, God himself cannot sink this ship. So, yes, <laughs> I am feeling good about it. Well, if we're, t- we're, yep. we're referring, of course, to the former president of the United States who was expecting oh, another— Oh, no, indictment. no, sorry. That's not who I was referring to. Sorry. I-, I was expecting Hunter Biden to be indicted, you know, quite possibly on, on Wednesday, and he wasn't indicted. Uh, well, uh, Josh— it, Were there other indictments that one might be waiting for? <laughs> a, a number of them, actually. Uh, it's sort of— uh, so what you are hearing there is the opening that we recorded to the first version of this episode uh, at approximately 5.20 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday. Now, as I'm speaking, it's 7.23 p.m. Eastern. And Ken, I would note I was right. Hunter Biden still has not been indicted. That's true. And yeah. technically, there has not been a new indictment of Donald Trump. Yes. Technically, it's, <laughs> it's a superseding indictment, which is something different. Yes. So literally just as we were finishing taping, like within five minutes of us finishing our recording session, uh, we got the push alert that there is a new indictment, a new federal indictment of Donald Trump, but not in Washington, D.C. We will talk later in this episode about the target letter that the former president received, suggesting that there might be an indictment coming pretty soon uh, in Washington, D.C. related to uh, events leading up to January 6th. But no, this is another indictment in the Southern District of Florida superseding the existing indictment of Donald Trump and his valet, Walt Nada. And so this this new indictment, it's mostly like the old indictment, but it adds some new charges and some fun new stories onto the documents case. Exactly, Josh. A superseding indictment is just like, think of it as an amendment to an existing indictment. It's used to add a few charges, maybe add some defendants, maybe add uh, some color, some story. And it goes any, everything from a superseding indictment that dramatically changes the case and makes it much more serious and ones that are largely cosmetic. This one's closer to the cosmetic side, Josh. So here's what's new in this superseding indictment. They added a new person, Carlos de Oliveira, another valet, Again, I, I suspect that at some point a valet may have stolen Jack Smith's girl. Uh, this is the second <laughs> valet he's indicted federally with Donald Trump. Um, they add a new document that Donald Trump wrongfully retained. And this appears to be the war plan that he infamously bragged about and waved around at Bidminster. And the implication is that that's a war plan on Iran. Uh, but mm-hmm. that's the document they added. Yeah, it uh, they, says here in the in in the superseding indictment, it says the document that Trump possessed and showed on July 21, 2021, is charged as count 32 in this superseding indictment. And then when you have the the list of the documents that was previously 31 documents long, they add document 32, which is then described as a presentation concerning military activity in a foreign country. So it sounds like they're saying that's the Iran war plan. Yes, it does. So, and then they add another conspiracy to conceal count on the theory that Trump and these two valets conspired to conceal or destroy uh, surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago surveillance cameras that the FBI was looking for that presumably they were looking for in order to demonstrate that boxes were being moved around. 
Notably, they tried and they failed. It seemed like none of them could find the password, basically, to get into the system and delete the footage. Yeah, they, it claims that they asked IT and IT uh, was unhelpful. I'm sure that stuns everyone out there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I mean, give it to IT. They're asked to obstruct justice and say, eh, I'm not sure we know how to do that. You know, um, <laughs> that's the right way to handle it, people. Uh, the other amusing things are that, first of all, uh, one of the defendants in discussing their plans to be traveling for this conspiracy, uh, the indictment uh, describes them as using shushing emojis. So, I mean, that that just helps keep the jury entertained, Josh. That's just considerate, yes. um, you know, showing that. Don't use shushing emojis unless you want it to seem like you're talking about stuff you're trying to keep quiet. The other thing they do is they very helpfully, when they've been instructed by Trump to get the footage from the surveillance cameras, they go into the corridor on camera and point at the surveillance cameras, as is to say, <laughs> there is the object of our unlawful conspiracy to obstruct justice. Well, you so. have to understand, when they pointed at the security cameras, they thought that IT, once they asked them to delete it, would delete the footage, and therefore no one would see the footage of them pointing at the security cameras. If IT had done its job, then no one would have ever heard about this. Again, Josh, that suggests a very limited exposure to IT. So... <laughs> Uh, the bottom line is this. Superseding indictments uh, sometimes are cosmetic. This one is, uh, aside from the poor gentleman uh, who is added on as another defendant for whom it is very much not cosmetic, it's mostly a cosmetic change. It, it, it adds one defendant who's part of the conspiracy to obstruct justice and destroy documents or destroy evidence, but mostly it just slightly tweaks the way they're going to tell the story of all the bad things Donald Trump did. It makes it helps them how they're going to present the case and convince a jury uh, of the bad intent here. A previous thing that happened this week in this case is that Judge Eileen Cannon uh, ruled on motions from both sides asking uh, with ideas about whether and how she should set a trial date for this case. The government had asked her to set a trial date in December. The Trump team had actually asked her not to set a trial date yet, and they had some very aggressive arguments about that, saying that Trump is too busy to stand criminal trial, saying that he's running for president and that's not a, that's a good reason not to put him on criminal trial, that the trial definitely shouldn't happen before the election. Um, and then they also had some actually good arguments about why they should wait a while to have the trial trial about the complexity and particularly the complexity of the motions that will be had around handling the classified documents. There'll be evidence in this trial. So anyway, the judge received those motions and she issued a ruling saying that the, the trial would start in May of next year. That was before we got this superseding indictment. Am I wrong to assume that if you file a new indictment, that that causes the trial to start later than it otherwise would have? Absolutely. Uh, the, the new facts don't delay it that much because they don't really materially change the picture of the case that much, but the new defendant does. So you've got to get that defendant there. He has to find counsel. He has to be arraigned the way the others have. And then you have to consider his attorney's availability and arguments and that type of thing. So that probably knocks everything out at least a couple of months. And so isn't that an odd choice on the government's part here? If this isn't a super important thing to add into the case, shouldn't they prefer speed over a little bit more color and one more defendant? Normally, no. Normally, you wouldn't particularly care. You care mostly about getting it right and getting a strong indictment that lets you put on the case the way you want to. Now, 
if you were calculating, you might say, well, we're going to give up this stuff and not supersede because we're worried about it going out near the election or past the election, and then Trump might get elected and pardon himself. But if you're Jack Smith, who sees things a particular way, I think he sees it as sort of like, look, I just got to do my job, do the way I normally would. I can't get my head into the election and the impact that's going to have and Trump pardoning himself. I just have to do my job, which is to prosecute it the right way. So I think that's the way he's thinking. Let's talk about that that ruling from Judge Cannon saying that the trial date for this case would be in May. Um, and so I, again, you know, I assume that that will change somewhat, but this is an indication of the way that she's thinking about this case and the way she's thinking about timing for this case. And not only did she set a trial date in May, she gave this very detailed calendar of all the stuff that's supposed to happen between now and May and when it would happen. What did you make of this order? What does it suggest to you about how she's going to manage this case? It was a perfectly reasonable professional order. If anything, it was slightly ambitious in making a case of this complexity with this many pretrial issues happen that fast. I would have guessed more like a year, uh, which would put it, you know, in, uh, more like June uh, or July. A, a year from the indictment. Yes, a year from the yeah. indictment. Um, mm-hmm. So it was perfectly reasonable and all the caterwaulings of the country you're here is is not very well informed. Trump had some good arguments. Maybe good's the wrong, the wrong word. You generally don't want to be having to make an argument to the judge that, Your Honor, we need more time because my client is simply being indicted and sued in so many different places. He's very <laughs> busy. Uh, but it, it, it's a reasonable, it, it shows her acting reasonably in the way you would expect her to in a case. So to the extent people are sort of sitting on pins and needles waiting for Judge Cannon to do something that demonstrates bias, the kind of bias many of us thought she showed in the uh, Trump's case trying to derail the investigation. This isn't it. This is just a normal professional uh, judging. Even absent this superseding indictment, I assume you would have expected that trial date to end up slipping some in the future, that there would be a lot of pretrial motions, some of which are not necessarily contemplated in the schedule that the judge put out. Uh, so, if, you know, if the superseding indictment is something that pushes this out a couple of months and then there was going to be other stuff that was also likely to end up pushing it out, should I assume that it's unlikely that this trial will start before Election Day in 2024? Uh I think that's not an unreasonable belief. Uh, Federal criminal trials usually get continued once or more than once. Uh, It's unusual for them to go on the first trial date ever set. In a case with this complexity, uh, it would be normal. Certainly if she does anything that causes either side to go up to the court of appeal, um, whether on a permitted appeal under the the laws related to classified information or on some sort of emergency writ that can delay things. So yeah, I think it's going to be tough on a case of this nature, getting it tried uh, before election day. Although you, you could wind up with it being tried close to election day. What a lot of fun that would be. Yeah. So in addition to this surprising indictment that we got this week, there's one we didn't get for Hunter Biden, which we'll talk about in a moment. And then the other one that hasn't come yet, but that is probably going to come pretty soon, is an indictment of Donald Trump in a different case from Jack Smith, in a case related to the events leading up to January 6th of 2021. The, it's the same special prosecutor, but a different grand jury in Washington, D.C. that is looking at that and Trump, as is his style, announced himself that he'd received a target letter 
saying that uh, they are looking at charging him in this case and even naming a few federal offenses that he might be charged about. Right. So what he got is a, a, a target letter and an invitation to the grand jury. So the U.S. Attorney's Manual encourages prosecutors to invite people in to give their side of the story to the grand jury <laughs> to, uh, you know, just so they can't say later, oh, you know, so the grand jury, it's so one-sided, they don't get to hear my side of the story. Fine, come tell the grand jury your side of the story. Uh, this is almost always an incredibly stupid thing to do to come in and tell your side of the story to the grand jury, with the exception of certain incredibly favored groups like cops who can fairly routinely walk into the grand jury and explain why that uh, unarmed black guy's back was threatening them and, and you know, <laughs> get off. Uh, so this was just a, a pro forma thing, maybe even a bit of a troll. And it signaled that an indictment is quite imminent in federal criminal jury time. And then we also know that the president's attorneys, uh, they went into a building, they appeared to be going into a meeting with uh, with Jack Smith on Thursday. That's right. We're recording this on Thursday. We were told this morning they went in. They went into a similar meeting be before the last Jack Smith indictment. Uh, it did not have the desired effect, except possibly Jack Smith's desired effect. <laughs> and again, that type of meeting signals sort of end game very imminent indictment, again, in in federal criminal terms. So we know that Trump's lawyers were seen going into this building that implied they were going in for a meeting with Jack Smith in Washington, D.C. Is it possible that this meeting was about the superseding indictment in Florida that came down some hours after the meeting? Uh, possible, but unlikely, because the wheels were probably already in motion going before the grand jury uh, on the superseding indictment in Florida at the time of the meeting. It's not something you can just, you know, walk out of Jack Smith's office, walk across the hall and do in 15 minutes. Uh, but they might well, especially have since you'd have to go a thousand miles. Well, exactly. Uh, so they may have told them during that meeting, oh, and while you're here, just thought we'd like you to know uh, that uh, your guy just got indicted on a superseding indictment. So <laughs> it, it, I, I suspect it was brought up. But I suspect the focus of the meeting was still the, the new case. Well, although, I mean, Trump likes to announce these things himself. If his lawyers had been told in that meeting that the indictment was coming down, I think we might have seen a post on Truth Social about it. It all happened very fast, though. I mean, the meeting was this morning. Uh, my sense is that Trump lawyers often like to break news to him in person. Maybe they had not yet gotten to the point where they'd fully informed him and he'd had an opportunity to go on Truth Social. <laughs> And so then the target letter, there's reporting that it mentions conspiracy to defraud the United States, it mentions witness tampering, and it mentions interference with rights. So what, is, what does that tell us about what sort, of, what sort of theory they might indict Donald Trump on? So assuming that the sources are right, it suggests that the theory is going to be surrounding the effort to put bogus slates of electors in front of... Uh, the Senate to be approved uh, because that would be, you know, a conspiracy to defraud the United States by presenting it with false information. Uh, the interference with rights, there are theories under which if you commit election fraud, then you are depriving uh, the voters of their constitutional right to vote to a fair election. And so that's probably the theory that is going on. Interfering with a witness is not quite as clear who that would be. 
but given the way Trump tends to act and the way he was, you know, basically careening around yelling at people, uh, it, it would not so, uh, surprise me in the slightest that he had, you know, made some sort of threatening communication. If that's an accurate uh, list of what was in this target letter, these three offenses, can we infer that that is a that is a complete list and that he would not be indicted for anything else? Because there's there's a few other things that we've thought he might be indicted for that aren't listed in there. It, it doesn't include obstruction of an official proceeding, which many of the January 6 rioters were charged with for trying to interfere with the with the vote count on January 6. Um, it doesn't uh, suggest that there's uh, there's going to be an indictment related to inciting violence at the Capitol on January 6. And it also doesn't list any sort of campaign finance crime. There had been this theory that maybe he was defrauding donors to his campaign by telling them that the election had been stolen and also perhaps by telling them that the money that they would give to the campaign would be to fight uh, to ensure that the election would be unstolen. Um, so if those things are not mentioned in the letter, does that mean he won't be indicted for them? That's likely the correct interpretation, Josh, because there's they probably wouldn't invite you in for just part of the case. Uh, they'd probably invite you in to tell your story on on the whole thing. I've never thought that the inciting violence theory was likely. Uh, the, the bar for incitement is just set too high. The First Amendment defense is too powerful. Um, maybe they didn't go with the obstruction of justice. Uh, because obstructing the, an official uh, proceeding, or do you, oh, yeah. oh I, yeah, sorry, obstruction just or obstructing a official official proceeding because the specific intent requirement for that is complicated, uh, more complicated than the other ones we're talking about here. So it, it, this may be something where Jack Smith is giving some thought about what are the easiest to prove and the kind of the cleanest. Jack Smith has demonstrated that. Uh, he doesn't listen to the Rico shouters, the, the people who want him to charge the biggest, splashiest, scariest sounding, most impressive sounding things. He charges things that are provable and straightforward, which is what a good prosecutor should do. Uh, and so, yeah, that makes sense. And so we didn't get the indictment on Thursday uh, and we've got the, the grand jury has left the building. Now, maybe there'll be one tomorrow morning. Um, what is what does this tell us about the the likely timing for this indictment? Yeah, probably next week. If I were forced with the gun to my head to guess, I'd say next Thursday. If Thursdays are the day this grand jury is meeting, uh, so it could still happen. They, you know, the, the the information they're not returning it could be wrong. They could have gotten the indictment just not and gotten it to the clerk's office. But I, I think likely it's going to be next week, the next time this grand jury meets. Yeah, I last when the Florida. Uh, indictment came down, there were some false news reports about which days the, ju the grand jury would be meeting on. Right. And th we ultimately got the indictment on a day that people thought we couldn't get the indictment because people didn't think the grand jury would be meeting that day. Yeah. So, so I mean, typically federal grand juries, you meet one time a week on a particular day, but there's nothing stopping them from arranging to meet a different day. There's also a possibility that we're talking about a few weeks because there's a few new pieces of information that we've been hearing about coming in. Things like more of the bogus electors being called to the grand jury. Uh, our old friend, pardoned by former Trump, Bernie Carrick, apparently just caved on some issues, turned over some documents and some information. So you could absolutely see it going a little while with a gather a little more information. But the target letter, the invitation to come in and talk about specific things is definitely a sign of a, a very late stage of the game. Let's turn to Hunter Biden. 
What happened on Wednesday where he was in court in Delaware, he was supposed to plead guilty to a couple of tax misdemeanors, but then he didn't end up entering a guilty plea and the judge didn't end up accepting his plea agreement? Well, what happened was that Hunter Biden showed up to enter a guilty plea to two misdemeanor counts of failing to file a tax return and to agree to the diversion agreement under which he would not be prosecuted on a charge of possessing a gun as an addict uh, so long as he kept clean for two years. But what happened instead was that the federal judge realized that the party's agreements were kind of badly put together and haphazard, and they hadn't really thought them through. And the judge in her appropriate supervisory uh, authority to make sure that someone knows what they're pleading guilty to, in effect, derailed the plea and sent them all back to figure out what they meant to do and to come back. How often does this sort of thing happen? I mean, when you have a plea agreement, both sides in the controversy have reached, they, they've agreed on what should happen here. It, how how unusual is it for the judge to say, no, I won't sign off on that, or at least, no, I won't sign off on that yet. You need to make some changes and do certain things to make clear to me that this is an appropriate agreement. Unusual, but not unheard of. It happens a few ways sometimes. Sometimes the client just hasn't been well prepared and doesn't understand all the terms. And so when they hear them in live and open court, uh, they get surprised and the judge says, you know what, go talk to your lawyer some more. We'll do this tomorrow. Um, sometimes the client is mentally ill or has other uh, issues and, and has trouble for that reason. Sometimes uh, the judge has a role to accept or not accept the plea agreement and for some reason won't. That's not very often. Generally, judges defer to the prosecution on this, even when uh, the rules give them a role to ultimately accept or not accept a plea agreement. But this uh, was, I think, one of the most stark examples I've seen uh, in living memory of the parties coming up with a convoluted plea structure that I don't think they read carefully or thought through carefully, showing up to court and it all just falling apart as soon as the judge prodded it a little bit. So let me give you a couple of examples. Well, first of all, can I, can I just say how strange I find this? Because as I think you're going to go through, the, the screw-ups were on both sides. It's clear that both the prosecutors and the defense attorneys didn't do everything that they really ought to have done in the process that got us here. Hunter Biden has fancy defense attorneys from Latham and Watkins, who I assume are billing God, God knows how many hundreds of dollars an hour for this. They're supposed to be very good. The prosecutors, the federal prosecutors, this is one of the most high-profile cases that federal prosecutors in the whole country will handle this year. They know that everyone is paying attention. This is going to be all over the news, and it's also a huge political football. And what you're going to describe is basically a certain amount of carelessness on both sides of that, which I just find really strange because these are supposed to be good lawyers, and they know that everyone is watching them as they handle this case, and they still came up with something that didn't make a lot of sense and that wasn't satisfactory to the judge. Yeah, but there's something human going on, and that is I think they've kind of been siloed. They've been negotiating this for years, apparently. This has been going on for a long time. And sometime in that circumstance, I think you just get so sort of in your own head and just in the context of this conversation you've been having with the other side that you kind of lose track of how any outsider might read the documents you're putting together, how might perceive the situation. So the, a couple of things happened. They had divided this, as I said, into one agreement that says, here's how you're pleading guilty uh, to two counts of failure to file a tax return, and one agreement that says, 
here's how you're going to be on diversion for the gun count. Right. Saying we won't charge you for the gun count so long as you do X, Y, and Z for a certain period. Right. And X, Y, and Z being mostly don't take drugs or use alcohol for two years and submit to supervision. So the weird thing that they did was they put what's called a non-prosecution agreement um, in only the diversion agreement, not in the plea agreement. Josh, usually when you plead guilty to something, um, unless it's like a one-count indictment and you're pleading guilty to the only count, most other circumstances, there's some agreement not to prosecute you for other things. So let's say you're charged with 50 counts of something and you agree to plead to three. Usually the agreement is going to say something to the effect of we, the government, this office agrees, you know, if you abide by these terms, not to prosecute you for the other 47 and to dismiss them and not to prosecute you for anything else described in this statement of facts, this case. Uh, those are always very carefully drafted because the government doesn't hand out immunity easily and they don't want later the defendant to come back and say, oh, well, I was confused about what you said you wouldn't prosecute me for. Here, they took a uh, non-prosecution promise. They stuck it in the diversion agreement, which is not the agreement where he's agreeing to plead guilty. And they made the terms kind of vague. It says we won't prosecute you for anything encompassed in the statement of facts attached to these two agreements. Now, when we were talking, you were the one who asked this question, Josh. It was a perfectly fair one. What the fuck does encompassed mean? Right. Um, because the way the government understood it was, well, these statements of facts specify particular crimes that you committed, and this just means we're not going to bring more charges based on those crimes. Specifically, those are tax evasion crimes right. and the purchase of a firearm when, and making a false statement when buying the firearm and being addicted to drugs. Exactly. Uh, so the way the government understood it is the way they should, if they had drafted it right, that the specific crimes called out in these statements were not going to further prosecute you for. But the, the weird thing is the, the tax statement also had a lengthy introductory paragraph talking about all the ways Hunter Biden – earned the money that he didn't report and didn't pay taxes on. And some of those were the very transactions and relationships that the GOP has been yelling were illegitimate and violations of the Foreign Agent uh, Registration Act and maybe some sort of corruption and so on. Well, and, and not not implausibly, like that, that there could be a FARA charge lying somewhere in here seems seems quite plausible, right? It does, because the paragraph describes him getting money for acting on behalf of these foreign companies. So apparently, Hunter Biden's attorney interpreted all this language to mean, we're agreeing we're not going to prosecute you for anything having to do with those facts in that introductory paragraph, anything having to do with you earning money from those sources. The government didn't understand it to mean that. Now, I, I think that both are plausible interpretations. And Josh, when you're dealing with an agreement that determines who goes to federal prison and for how long, it's not good to have terms that have multiple plausible interpretations. So <laughs> this was a screw up. And the judge uh, dug it out. The judge saw it as an issue and asked, wait, how do you interpret this? And, you know, there was, it was immediately clear and, and Hunter Biden's lawyer says, well, then we should just tear this up because not, it's not the deal we understood we had. Now, mm -hmm. Hunter Biden's lawyer later, after a little break, talked to the government and backed down and said, OK, I guess it means just they won't prosecute him for tax. But by that time, the judge had really seen that this is a problem. The core 
job of a federal judge in a guilty plea is to make sure the defendant has been fully advised of their rights, understands everything they're giving up, and understands the terms of the deal. And, and the judge has just seen clearly that at least prior to this hearing, Hunter Biden couldn't have understood the deal because his lawyer didn't understand the deal. So that was mm -hmm. one of the issues. Uh, another issue it was that the judge just found, as I do, this structure very strange, where the non-prosecution agreement is hidden in the diversion contract, and what that means is that if Hunter Biden relapses, uh, if he mm -hmm. takes drugs or drinks alcohol, which addicts often do, we know, then he breaches the diversion agreement and hypothetically he loses that non-prosecution promise. So I thought the judge thought that was weird. It wasn't clear to the judge what happens if one of the agreements fails and the other doesn't. It wasn't clear to the judge what if it turns out that under the Supreme Court's new precedent, that the statute saying you can't possess a firearm if you're an addict is unconstitutional. And that's a very plausible reading of, of recent Supreme Court uh, jurisprudence. So, and then finally, there, there's a clause in the um, diversion agreement that says, basically, if we accuse you of breaching this, the judge decides whether or not you did. The judge didn't like that. She thought they were putting on her, putting her in a role that she shouldn't have. Well, well and, the, and the other thing about that is that the plea agreement, the court is a party to the plea agreement. The judge has to sign off on the plea agreement. The diversion agreement, the court is not a party to, right? This is purely an agreement between the prosecution and the defense. The judge seemed partly put off by that, that, the, that this agreement that she doesn't even sign off on purports to assign responsibilities to her. The judge is not a party to anything. The judge is not a party to either agreement. The judge actually says that repeatedly on the record in any plea. But the judge was being asked to participate in the process by possibly being called in to determine whether Hunter Biden had breached the diversion agreement. Now, in reality, I think the judge was a little wrong on this because it's, it's not uncommon to have a term for the judge to decide whether there was a breach of the agreement. But I just think the way it was expressed and the weird way these two different agreements were kind of weirdly cobbled together, that put the judge off. The, the, there's also Rule 11 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure has different types of plea agreements. And some of them, the judge has to sign off on, say, I accept this agreement, I accept the plea. And some they don't. One of the factors that determines whether or not the judge has to sign off is whether the agreement promises not to prosecute someone for something. So the judge, it seemed, thought that they were sticking the non-prosecution agreement into the diversion agreement in order to insulate the other agreement from her review. I, I think that's too cute. I don't think that's what they were trying to do. I think they didn't really mm -hmm. think the structure through carefully. But the, the end result of all this, Josh, was he said, look, I'm not accepting it today. Go straighten this out. Go make this clear and come back. So it was interesting when this hit. You just saw a flood of propaganda and hysterical reactions and nonsense about it. And a lot of it was along the lines, you know, Judge Pierce's sweetheart deal and throws it out. Uh, but really, this was just a federal judge acting responsibly and professionally the way a federal judge is supposed to act and saying, look, come back when you guys have your shit together because you really don't here. Well, and in fact, in certain ways, she was she was uncovering that the agreement was less favorable to Hunter Biden than it may have appeared to be and that Hunter Biden may have believed that it was. Absolutely. And that's her job. She should be doing exactly that. 
this was happening under the shadow, uh, Josh, of the uh, uh, of a group of uh, Republican House members trying to file a brief in the case, arguing that this was a sweetheart deal and the judge should look into it. And there was all sorts of drama over this. The reality is judges are used to weird, somewhat crazy pro se's filing things in cases that are none of their business. So I don't think it rattled her much. And actually, at the beginning of the hearing, she said, uh, these people are trying to file this. What do the parties think about whether or not I even have the right to tell the government what they should or shouldn't prosecute. And everyone says, oh, you don't have that right. And she agreed. Mm -hmm. And then she yeah. said, and this is the greatest leading question I've ever heard. Well, if, if someone in Congress thinks the government's being too lenient, what's the remedy for that? Is it political? And they say, yeah, it's a political remedy, Your Honor. And she sort of said, I thought so. So that to me was crystal clear. She was telling the House members, you know, go be annoying someplace else. One thing that's interesting about that political context, though, is if you divorce it from the political circumstances, I find the the choices that Hunter Biden and his attorneys made in this hearing to be very strange, which is to say they went in with this very expansive understanding of what the uh, non-prosecution agreement was protecting Hunter Biden from, that it was not just potential felony tax evasion uh, charges, but Foreign Agents Registration Act charges, where again, we think that there's there's good reason to think that he might well have legal exposure there. They thought this was an agreement that he wouldn't be prosecuted for that. Then they learn it's not that sort of agreement, or at least the government believes it's not that sort of agreement. And initially they say, well, then the deal's off. But then they confer and they say, actually, we're willing to take the deal on those terms, terms that they've just learned are much less favorable than what they thought they had negotiated. Which it seems like, you know, if that if that was an important thing for your client, that you wouldn't take it, or at least you wouldn't take it right away. You would go back and negotiate some more and decide. I assume that the way Hunter Biden and his attorneys feel about this is that they, they just want a plea agreement finalized as soon as possible, as they see the political pressure that exists around DOJ. And who knows, there may well be people within DOJ who wish they had handled this differently, right. who would have made more aggressive choices. This strengthens their hand. I assume they're worried that every day they don't have a plea agreement that is approved by the court is a day that DOJ might change its mind. And and so they're so over a barrel that they basically have to say, you, they, they can't raise any objections in this hearing. They just have to try to get the judge to say yes. I, I don't I think that's giving him too much credit. I, I, I okay. think. What do you think they were doing? I, I don't think they knew what they were doing. I think they came in unprepared and not having thought about it carefully enough and were blindsided a little bit by what was going on and were just making it up as they went along. Nothing else really makes right, but sense. I, I understand that. But, it, but once you realize that there is this huge gaping disagreement between your side and the other side about what the agreement even means. Isn't the obvious thing to say, no, we don't want to, we don't want this plea agreement approved today. We at least want some time to think about it and negotiate about it. It's, I find it really strange to sort of try to push toward resolution. There, you're absolutely right. Unless you're just afraid that, you know, that the, that for political reasons or for other reasons, the thing might fall away if you delay it all. But that doesn't make sense. I mean, it's clear th this has been out here. It's weathered the storm of people who are inaccurately and unfairly outraged by it, delaying it by a week or a day or whatever was was not going to make it go away. It's far more important to have something... Well, they talked about at least a couple of weeks. Yeah. I, I mean, it's more important to think, you know, Donald Trump could be president again. And, and then, you know, he's talking about making uh, the Department of Justice more firmly under the president's thumb. And, and then you've got real worries about them coming after Hunter Biden 
with more. You want to get it done right. But the errors came before they walked into the courtroom. The errors came with the drafting of these agreements, with how they were structured, with how the non-prosecution promise was worded, and them not seeing that as a problem uh, was a big screw up. These are all good lawyers. Good lawyers make mistakes. Let, let's. This doesn't stop them from being good lawyers, but they screwed up on this. So I, I understand that screw up, but they're at the point in the in the hearing where the government and Hunter Biden's attorneys establish that they have this disagreement about how to read the agreement. They talk about, well, maybe we need 30 days to work this out. Uh, should we pause this? And then they decide, well, why don't we take 10 minutes and, and the parties can talk and figure out if there's something else that they can do. So they talk for, they take a brief recess. They come back and Hunter Biden's attorney says to the judge, he says, your honor has asked the parties what their understanding of the paragraph 15 of the diversion agreement is. That's the part, that's the paragraph that says what they're not going to prosecute him for. He says, I think there was some space between us. And at this point, we are prepared to agree with the government that the scope of paragraph 15 relates to the specific areas of federal crimes that are discussed in the statement of facts, which in general and broadly relate to gun possession, tax issues, and drug use. So, they're, they're agreeing to fold on this issue. They're agreeing to fold on that issue today. And the, and the judge doesn't ultimately go for that in part because she, I think, correctly susses out that the that the statements from the defense on, on this and their willingness and Hunter Biden's own statements about it are not super clear that they've thought that through. Yeah. But it seems to me like that in that moment, they were agreeing to fold on that issue, which, among other things, would open space for a potential Trump Justice Department to bring a fair prosecution against Hunter Biden. Not only that, but it opens you up to your client to say, wait a minute, this is an incredibly momentous decision and you made me make it on the fly in, in, in 10 minutes to agree to this. Yeah. The other thing was they shouldn't have come back and said that because there was effectively zero chance the judge, once that happened, was going to take the plea that day. Okay, the judge was like, imagine in a restaurant and someone brings out your plate of pasta and then the waiter comes running back to the table and says, oh no, I have to take this back. This is the plate of pasta with a cockroach in it. <laughs> and then they say, wait, wait, wait. No, this one isn't the one. Never mind. Now, you're not going to eat the dish pasta that day right there, okay? Even if the waiter then said, no, wait, never mind. I was wrong. Same with the judge here. The judge was not going to take the plea anymore after that train wreck happened. And so there was no reason, unless the Department of Justice making some really bizarre threats behind the scene to make the attorney go like that. I, I, I'm with you. I don't understand why they acted that way. Isn't that terrible lawyering? I is there is there a possible explanation that, that I'm not seeing here about how that could be a, a non-idiotic way to represent your client? I think it was a uh, a bad decision in the moment. I, I don't want to run down these attorneys too much. They're good attorneys. They have good reputations. They have good records. In the moment, they made a dumb choice. Uh, and who hasn't done that on on one occasion or another? I know I'm bending okay. over backwards to be, uh, but these are not like career bad attorneys. These are career good attorneys who kind of blew it in this situation. I should note, by the way, I've, I've repeatedly mentioned Hunter Biden's lawyers. What is that noise? Is that my computer? Oh, weird. <laughs> that was, I opened the, the firm page for uh, uh, Christopher Clark. Hunter Biden's attorney, who who made that declaration in court. And for some reason, there's some sort of autoplay video or audio on his page at his firm. But I just wanted to say he's not at Latham and Watkins. There's more than one firm that Hunter Biden has involved in his rep representation. And that guy is at his own firm of Clark Smith Villazor, 
Um, and uh, I don't know why their website plays audio. But anyway. Because they hate you. <laughs> so Judge Mary Ellen Noreka has basically told the two sides, go modify this into an agreement that makes more sense. What should we expect to see happen next year? I think they'll come back with either slightly modified agreements uh, or a brief explaining why they think the agreements are appropriate and convincing the judge that we now understand everything in them and we're all on the same page and there is a true meeting of the minds. And then would you expect Judge Norica to approve the agreement? She gave every sense that she would. The, uh, the only thing she really didn't like on a personal level seemed to be the issue of her being the one to be asked to determine whether or not Hunter Biden breaches the diversion agreement. But I think I think they'll bring her along on that and convince her that's actually fairly standard practice. I, I Again, and everyone went into this thinking, oh, okay, there's a Trump-appointed judge and, you know, either, ah, she pierced the, the wrongdoing and she's kicking out the sweetheart deal or she's a terrible person and she's undermining this to carry the Trump agenda. Really, this was a judge acting very patiently and responsibly. It's a very long hearing, Josh. You saw how long mm -hmm. that transcript is. She kept it together. Yeah. I think someone who's been in front of a lot of federal judges, you can read in the transcript her growing sort of frustration kept very tightly in check as the hearing progresses because they really did not put the thought into this they needed to. And, and that happens. Sometimes it's happened to me. I've shown up in front of a judge with a whiz-bang plan or something, and I just haven't thought it carefully through first, and the judge makes me look like an idiot. It happens to every lawyer sooner or later. And then another question in terms of what what's ahead for Hunter Biden is uh, David Weiss, the U.S. attorney for Delaware, who ultimately oversees this prosecution. He has said previously that this that this investigation is still open, this investigation into Hunter Biden. And that's something that Leo Wise, the, the prosecutor who was actually appearing before Judge Noreka, also said during this hearing. And it's it's been unclear to me what exactly that means. Is it, would it be normal for them to plead some portion of this out while they're still figuring out whether they're going to charge him with other stuff? It would be unusual, but possible. If there's a lot of stuff and some of it is going to take a really long time, then you might carve some of it out. I think that probably all the indications are that there's not a strong chance they're looking to indict him on more things, that probably there's a combination of things going on here. There's some residual stuff they're still sort of looking into so they can't make any guarantees. Nothing else is going to happen. Uh, but the big part is, it's just when the judge asked, is there anything else uh, still an investigation? It's an inappropriate question, at least to prosecutor culture. It's like, that's, that's not your business, uh, is the way the AUSA kind of politely put it. But the idea is judges don't get to ask you know, what else are you doing? Are you doing other investigations? So if we go back to our restaurant, Josh, and you're at the restaurant on a date and the waiter asks, hey, are you two going to have sex later? The issue isn't whether you've decided you are or you aren't or whether it would be wrong if you did. The issue is it's none of your fucking business. Why are you asking? So I think that is part of the reluctance of the AUSA to answer the judge's question. Right. But it, isn't this also a question that the defense attorneys would have? Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's very closely related to this question of what does the non-prosecution 
clause of this agreement cover. It is. Presumably, it's important for them to know whether the Department of Justice is thinking about charging Hunter Biden, presumably with FARA, but who knows, could be some other thing related to his business activity. Prosecutors can be a bit cagey about whatever they want. It strikes me as, as odd for them to be cagey about that and still get the defense to agree to a plea agreement. You're right. It would be unusual unless it was the best of a lot of bad options. So you might still plead. I mean, if the, the government told you, we're definitely going to charge him with these and we're still looking into the other stuff. But if you want to get in front of these ones we're definitely doing, I can give you a good deal on those. You might take that. But I, I, I think probably they conveyed to the defense, uh, you know, it's not formally charged, but we don't see anything happening anytime soon. Um, and, you know, we're not going to rule it out. But I mean, unless we find something we haven't found yet. And that kind of informed maybe the lack of due care in looking at the non-prosecution promise. Well, so, I mean, I guess what, one other scenario I want to talk about is suppose that both sides, they, t they leave this hearing, they go think some more about what's really important in the non-prosecution agreement. What if both sides determine that their interpretation of the agreement, that it was really important to them, that it be as they thought it was, um, that Hunter Biden and his attorneys decide that he shouldn't take a plea deal if it's not going to protect him from prosecution on other potential crimes, and the federal prosecutors decide they're not willing to make that deal. Should we then expect a trial over tax evasion charges for Hunter Biden? Then I expect it goes back and they indict him on something. I don't think they indict him on the gun charge because it's so rarely prosecuted. I think they indict him on tax stuff and maybe felony tax stuff. Maybe they decide, fine, if you're not going to plead early, uh, you know, you're going to get the harsher approach. Um, and it could happen soon or it could take a while and they could be looking to see if there's anything else to, to package into it. I, I don't see that as likely because, as you said, the attorney already inexplicably caved on this issue on the record in court, suggesting that they don't think. I, I think what happens is they go back and the AUSA says, look, you know I'm not going to answer that question when a judge asks me that question, but you know me. I've told you we haven't found anything that makes us interested in prosecuting for anyone else. Can I rule it out? Absolutely no, but you know, we've worked together for years and you, you can make your own assessment. And the attorney decides, you know, I don't think it's happening. Well, except that they're concerned that two years from now, it's a different person than that job of Donald Trump. Exactly. That's, that's the complicating yeah. factor. Rudy Giuliani uh, is being sued for false claims that he made about two election workers in Georgia, Ruby Freeman and Wandrea Shea Moss. Um, he uh, alleged that they were involved in a conspiracy to steal the election in Georgia. They sued him for defamation. Um, and now there's discovery in that case, or there may be discovery in that case. And Giuliani, in an effort to avoid certain discovery in that case, has gone and made stipulations. And he's saying, well, I'll admit that certain things that I said were false so that we don't need discovery related to the question of whether those statements were false. So first of all, why would he do that? What's so bad about having to go through discovery? Uh, he really seems intent on getting out of discovery by doing this. So uh, either he really doesn't want to get into who is telling him or encouraging him uh, to say these things or who he said it to or what information he had in front of him and from what sources or any of that, because who knows who that leads to. It could lead to Trump. Um, it could be the expense. Discovery is incredibly expensive and intrusive, and he could be trying to cut it short. 
But yeah, he, he filed this stipulation and it's kind of bizarre. I was reading it and I was, I was, I was, I was cringing the whole time. Like, I, I, I think I know what you're trying to do, but why are you doing it like this? Uh, he, he's trying to say, well, you know, if these statements were statements of fact, then I admit they're false. And if you say you were damaged, uh, then you were damaged, except uh, I'm going to argue about how much you were damaged. And it, it's, it's not the most coherent stipulation ever. Uh, and all it really does, it seems, I don't think it's going to convince a judge to stop discovery because there's still a lot of reasons discovery is relevant. It's going to go to his mental state. It could go to punitive damages. It could go to all sorts of things, um, go to actual malice. Uh, and I don't know, it, it just kind of winds up being a great talking point against Rudy. And I'm not sure it really achieves anything. So it, it, he's represented by counsel, but I wonder how much control the counsel has because it's just a, a weird move to try. So the, the stipulation document it only has a signature from him personally. There wouldn't, right. his lawyers wouldn't sign on that. That's another weird thing. Yeah, normally his lawyers should sign the stipulation because they're supposed to agree to, you know, a, a, an agreement between the parties. It has to be approved by the lawyer for the party. Hmm. So I, I don't know what they're trying uh, to do there. If it's meant to head off discovery, I don't think it's going to be effective. I think all it does is give a a victory uh, to the other side, certainly a huge public relations victory. And all the papers are crowing that he's admitted that he was lying about these things. You know, his best defense may be, yeah, but I mean, who didn't I accuse of election fraud? You know, it's not like I singled <laughs> you out. Um, and I don't know, he, he seems to be kind of decompensating a little bit here. Finally, let's talk about Sam Bankman-Fried. Do you remember Sam Bankman-Fried? It's, you know, it's hard to keep track all the misfits and weirdos and, and lummoxes we've covered on this show. But Sam Bankman-Fried is, of course, uh, the guy who, who made Bitcoin even skeevier, uh, <laughs> which takes a, a high level of talent. Only someone with two Stanford professors as parents could do that. Uh, Let's start with the good news for Sam Bankman-Fried, which is that some of the charges against him were dropped, specifically charges related to campaign donations, that he had engaged in a conspiracy to make uh, illegal campaign donations, straw donations, uh, etc. Um, and the reason they dropped it is that the Bahamas didn't agree that they had extradited him for that purpose. Why would, the, why would it be in the interest of the Bahamas to stand in the way of U.S. prosecutors to prosecute this guy? Well, first of all, they're not really standing in the way because that was like one of 10 charges. It's like saying, okay, you can shoot him, but you can only have eight bullets, not nine. <laughs> uh, and no, so this is the thing where uh, a country gets to decide on what charges they agree they release you when they extradite you to the country requesting it. And it may be that uh, Bahama law is different and so uh, under the rules, you're only supposed to extradite people for things that are crimes in both places. Maybe they didn't get shown uh, the evidence uh, of that. And so they didn't intend to release them on that basis. There are ways for the United States to get around this and redo it and that type of thing. But they're probably just going to think, you know, it's kind of bouncing the rubble. We don't need to. But the bottom line is they're just kind of following the formalities here. You're only supposed to prosecute people in the first instance of things that the other country released them to be prosecuted for. That's what they're doing. Okay. So there's still all the, the business fraud stuff, which is the, the key what Sam Bankman-Fried did wrong. 
and you know stealing stealing the client money in order to try to prop up his ex-girlfriend's hedge fund unsuccessfully. Uh, so the, the bad news for Sam Bankman-Fried uh, is that the, the government, which has previously sought and obtained more restrictive conditions of release for Sam Bankman-Fried because he kept trying to talk to anyone who would listen to him, um, and he was, talking, he was trying to talk to people who were going to be witnesses in the case, uh, and that was a big no-no, and they had to take away his internet access and various things. Uh, now they're upset because he's been talking to reporters over a thousand phone calls to reporters. I guess, you know, they, they, he doesn't have a smartphone anymore. So the only way he can use it's actually a phone. You have to make calls. And he's been doing that quite enthusiastically. Why isn't he allowed to talk to reporters? Isn't it, doesn't he have a First Amendment right, uh, especially when he's being accused by the government of these serious crimes to, to make a defense of himself? And isn't part of that that, you know, if he wishes to talk to the press, as unwise as it might be as a legal strategy, doesn't he have a constitutional right to talk to the press? He does. Uh, what the government thinks, though, here is that he's specifically trying to talk to people in order to influence the case, to harass or intimidate witnesses. So the specific complaint here is that he's been talking to a New York Times reporter about Caroline Ellison, his former, you said girlfriend, I think the technical term is co-polycule, mm-hmm. um, and who's cooperating against him. She pled guilty. She's going to testify against him. Uh, and he has been digging up uh, her private communications with him that are embarrassing and giving them to the New York Times and trash talking her to the New York Times. And the government sees this as basically him trying to engineer a hit piece against her to deter her or punish her for testifying against him. His lawyers say, no, look, he, he's being completely destroyed in the press. Everyone thinks he's an idiot, which he is. You know, everyone thinks he's a crook. They say it constantly. He has a right to fight back. Uh, but they've already been mad because he reached out to the, the general counsel of his entity, FTX. Uh, and they saw that as basically trying to uh, work the refs in and trying to influence a potential witness. So they're going hard here. Apparently, you know, there was a hearing called about the issue in general, but they didn't tell uh, Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers they were going to ask for detention until minutes before the hearing which is kind of a, a dick move and, and a sign of the, the, the prosecutors being super mad. Uh, so the, the judge said basically, well, I'm going to let you all do further submissions about what should happen, whether I should yank his bail, uh, and set a, a date for that. Remember, this judge was already mad at him for screwing around with phones and computers and, and nonsense like that. So uh, what the judge did is set a really super restrictive gag order on him until the detention hearing, saying basically you can't talk to any press or anyone about the case uh, or you know any of these things about the case. You can generally assert your innocence, but no talking to reporters about any of the facts or defenses or details. Um, and Josh, as you suggested, that's of dubious constitutionality. Uh, gag orders are permissible. Uh, but really only when they're necessary to assure a fair trial. And this seems awfully broad and awfully lacking in relevant exceptions. Probably the only thing that might save it is that the judge is spinning it as a temporary order just until I decide whether or not I'm going to put you in jail. Isn't the other thing that might save it that they might not challenge it? They might not, but his his attorneys were. They were saying he has a right to talk to the press. Okay. Uh, but they probably said, OK, well, if, if you're telling me either he goes to jail today or he abides by this order until you have a hearing, then we'll abide by the order. Right. 
If you're his attorney, mightn't you be secretly pleased about the judge imposing a gag order on him? Pleased is the wrong word. Uh, (laughs) You know, it's kind of like, is there a fancy word for I told you so? Uh, Smug. Uh, I'm looking for smug. Uh, Yeah, the the, the, I'm sure his attorneys told him to cut this shit out. Well, but I mean, but both, you know, there's the issue of it might infuriate the judge and the prosecutors and they might try to get him detained. But the other thing is there are things that, that he could say that he might that he has a constitutional right to say or that prosecutors might not try to interfere with him saying that will be damaging to his case that, you know, for his own good, he shouldn't be talking even if he has the right to. You would think that the attorneys on his team might, you know, at least have mixed feelings about an order that would that would effectively give them more client control than they had. Well, exactly. I mean, your whole purpose as a litigator is to stop your clients and your witnesses from talking. Because as a rule, (laughs) every time you talk about the case, uh, there's a risk you're going to say something that you get wrong or you're going to contradict something you said before or you're going to create more of a record to to cross-examine you with later. So when your damn fool man-child client is making thousands of phone calls to the press about his case, you're just thinking, this is terrible. This This is a disaster. And so, yes, on a certain level, I'm sure they think, I'm going to go down fighting for my clients' First Amendment rights, even though it's absolutely in his best interest to be forcibly shut up. One thing that I find amusing and interesting about this situation is sometimes you have a defendant in the news who's talking more than he should. Yes. And people will ask, well, why do, why do his lawyers let him do that? Why don't they stop him? Um, and of course, you know, the, the lawyers, they can't make the client do anything. And similarly, sometimes you have some, an, an adult person whose parents are relevant in the news. You know, why does Joe Biden let Hunter Biden do this stuff? When, you know, again, like Joe Biden may have influence over but Hunter, but can't control him. But in this instance, Sam Bankman-Fried, even though he is an adult, he is living in his parents' home. Um, and it's a condition of his release that he has to live in their home. And his parents have have done a number of things to make that release possible, uh, including signing, you know, financial obligations in the event that he were to flee the country. So it seems like Joseph Bankman and Barbara Freed, they actually do have control over him. They could tell him that they're going to throw him out of the house if he doesn't stop making these phone calls. I realize that sounds like you're dealing with a teenager. He kind of is a teenager. But like they, if they cared to... Presumably, they could exert not just influence, but control over his behavior because their participation is required for him to be out of prison. So yeah, I don't. I mean, why don't they do that? I mean, I assume part of the answer is they're idiots too. They were involved in the business, um, and so they, you know, they've already shown that they have terrible judgment on on certain dimensions. But they, you know, this is different from a lot of these situations because really they can tell him to go to his room. I mean, look, Josh, I'm a parent. I I hate to throw the first stone on parenting. But yeah, I don't see anything here showing a strong sense that they had the capacity to exercise effective tough love or or, or control over him. You know, he's only adult-ish. And yeah, I mean, as a lawyer, pretty much your choices are to just just accept it or tell the client, well, you know, if you're going to keep doing this, um, I'm quitting. I'm firing you as a client. And I right. know criminal defense lawyers who do that, who say, look, if you go on the news to talk about this, we're done. I'm out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's what some attorneys should do. But ultimately, clients are going to say, I hear you, but it's really important for me to get my word out. And there's there's a certain personality type uh, that thinks that they can talk their way out of anything. 
and then it's essential that they try to do so. Uh, you, you know, there are clients who just do it and say, I'm going to do it. There's nothing you can do about it. And there are clients who do it and say, Ken, you're going to be mad, but <laughs> I just want to let you know that I just did this. And right. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Let's leave it there for this week. Josh, Ken- are we sure it's safe to stop here? Do we need to stop and, and like watch the news for a few minutes? I am not sure that it's safe to stop here, Ken. <sighs> but what option do we have? Has it ever occurred to you maybe we're not that smart? Because, I mean, like, the Greek heroes eventually learned to stop taunting the gods and showing hubris. We, we haven't seemed to pick that up yet. <laughs> Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more soon. See you next time.